We come then to Colossians chapter 3 and verses 5 through 8. This makes up the second uh, sermon in this brief series on the Christian's life in this world. And last time we looked at verses 1 through 4 and uh, we considered our union with Christ, which is, of course, the foundation and the fountain of all of the Christian's life in this world. Now we look at verses 5 through 8 of Colossians 3. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. These few verses for our consideration As we look this evening at the Christian's life in this world, and particularly in his putting to death his sin. Now, once it is that the Christian enters into eternity, the present life will be seen for the vapor it is. We make much of things that are rather vain in this world, but perhaps it is then that we'll see just how much sin was our enemy and how real of an enemy sin is. It's strange that we make much of little in this world, as it now is, and we make little of what is much in this world. Whether it is sin, which is tremendously real and powerful and requiring our attention, or the grace of God and the provision of Christ, which likewise, with all of His blessings, is a great blessing. Well, here we see Paul working through his exhortation to holiness. And so, as we saw last week, verses 1 through 4, Paul centers our attention upon the person of Christ, both who died for us, but most notably who is risen and ascended and seated at the right hand of God. And what's, of course, of great wonder is that we are seated with Him. For we are united to Him. And as we saw, Paul calls Christ, verse 4, our life. And it is this union with Christ that supplies us every, and oh, what comfortable hope it is that it is supplied to us in the overcoming of sin, temptation, and this world, and Satan. Well, you'll notice verse 5 continues this thought because he says, mortify Therefore, so in other words, in light of what's been stated in verses 1 through 4, he now comes with a specific exhortation in addition to what he's already said. Remember, he's exhorted us to seek the things which are above, to set our mind to mind the things above, not the things on the earth. And now he gives another exhortation, mortify. Therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Members referring to our bodies. And our bodies, of course, is Paul very clearly and Christ the King, of course. And the Scriptures throughout demonstrate are the instruments of carrying out the activity of sin. Put to death these things. 
which are upon the earth. And notice he's not talking about literally lopping off a finger or plucking out an eye or cutting off an arm, but he helps us see what are the things, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence. These serve in some ways as synonyms, and yet with different nuances. You'll notice fornication, of course, has the act involved of sin, and uncleanness has an implication of an act, and yet is more uh, drawing into the heart of the matter, inordinate affection, disordered, and uh, not just disordered and we think of an, an uh, unorganized room, but rather it's not ordered in the order that God has given it. And so these affections which are sinful and evil, concupiscence or twisted, corrupt lust. And then notice he says covetousness, which is idolatry. What a reminder to us that coveting is not this little sin, but rather is uh, that which commits us to something that is less than God and thus is the fountain of idolatry. So Paul is presenting to us not a comprehensive and exhaustive list of the things we're to put to death and labor against, but an illustrative list. And you'll notice in verse 6 he strengthens his exhortation, which if there's any sensitivity to spiritual things in us, this should resonate. He says, for which things sake, these sinful desires, these sinful acts that follow from them, the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. In other words, how contrary for someone to say, what's the big deal? Fornication, lust, covetousness. Everyone's guilty of it. Who cares about it? Paul says, remember this. The wrath of God which is to come is coming against those who practice these things. God detests it. God despises it. God will punish it. He says, moreover, verse 7, in the which, in these things, ye, you believers in Colossae, also walked some time when ye lived in them. Identity once was such that you were given to these things. But, you'll notice by implication, he's saying that's not what you are anymore. But now, verse 8, what you once were, you're not to be anymore, but now put off all these anger, wrath, malice, a different sort of view of different sins, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Now, you'll notice verse 9, transitions. So he's saying, here's what we're to put off and to, to put to death. He's going to exhort us as to what we are to put on and cultivate. But we looked particularly at verses 5 through 8 this evening. And as we do, we come to this uh, regular exhortation unto the Christian that they are to be active in the putting to death of that remaining sin. Now notice that he is speaking to believers. He's not calling upon unbelievers to mortify their sins. He says in verse 1, if ye then be risen with Christ. Well, that's a believer. That's a new creature. That's a Christian, not in name only, not merely by covenant right, but by gracious experience. They are those who have been born again. They are those who are converted. And yet it's they who are to be diligent in continuously putting to death what remains of sin. And so it's a Christian's calling. 
The Christian's life in this world is to include the active putting to death of remaining sin. And you can see how this is in many ways a needed message, certainly in every age, because as John says in 1 John chapter 1, if one says that he is without sin, he deceives himself and the truth is not in him. And so it's something true in every generation because every Christian will have this sight of heaven, indwelling sin. But it's also particularly needed in our own day when sin is not all that uh, of a concern. There is, of course, concern in some degree and to some extent. And classic and biblical view that this was a primary focus for the converted believer. That it was to be a focus daily in their lives among other activities and exercising, cultivating thanksgiving and cultivating holiness. There was to be a focus day by day in putting to death their sin. Someone says, well, wait a second. What about you know, my role as a spouse or my role as a parent or my role as a servant or my role as a master? Well, as you see the connection of the chapter, what you'll find is there's no fulfilling your roles unless you are given to the more essential calling of putting to death your sins and putting on the new man. The roles and their outworkings are the outworkings of this spiritual exercise of grace. And so what often has happened in our culture today is we have this multiplying of attention to how to be a better this or that or how to fix this or that, and it's full of all sorts of perhaps valid practical wisdom. And yet what it faults or what the fault is of those things is it fails often to give the due diligence to the more essential cultivating of grace in the soul of the believer. It's not a morbid thing for Paul to come to converted Christians and say, here is a primary calling that will permeate your whole life. You must mortify your sins daily. You must be active in it daily. If a day passes without it, you are setting yourself up for falling into the outworking of sin. But of course, our day doesn't know much about what sin is. It can say big picture things, but it cannot get so concrete. It has so capitulated to this notion that it's just, well, something that's wrong and it's inconsistency and it's not being true to myself instead of the concrete statement of defining sin by God's Word. And when God's Word is used as it is to be used to define sin, and not just the outward display, but the inward desires, as Paul is pointing our attention to, we start to see that it is not something little for a conference and for an annual retreat and for you know, a return to every six months and so on. It is an active war that calls for our constant attention. And we'll see that as we go on. And yet, we cannot swing to this hopeless and 
gritty approach because Paul is placing it within the context of hope because we have an ascended Savior who is our life. And so it's not that we're being thrust into a daily warfare that's just going to drag on without much encouragement, but rather we're thrust into a daily warfare through our Savior. So as we look at the Christian's life in this world, which consists, among other things, as we'll see, of putting sin to death, consider three things this evening. Firstly, uh, the meaning of mortification. You'll see that in verse 5, mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Secondly, the target, what is the thing that we're targeting in mortification? And finally, the source, or perhaps the cause of mortification. Well, firstly, then, the meaning of mortification. The word here, mortify, is perhaps literally translated as put to death. And you can see this verb as it is here appear in a uh, verbal noun, a participle, in Romans chapter 4, when it's speaking of Abraham, in chapter 4, verse 19 of Romans, whose body was, quote, now dead. Of course, it's in light of the promise. He was given promise to be the father of many nations, and he believed that promise, though his body was now dead. Not totally, of course, but as far as that virility that was required for the production of children that had been passed. And of course, his wife's body was well past the physical ability of bearing children. And so this mortify, put to death, is perhaps illustrated by Abraham's body, who, which was dead. It had not the power, in other words, to bring forth what was desired. Hebrews 11, verse 12, likewise, regarding Abraham and his body, says that he was as good as dead. It was basically the same thing, though he breathed and moved and so on. His body, as far as producing children, was as good as a dead body. It did not have the power to produce what was needed. Well, this is a helpful insight to what Paul's getting at. When he says, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, he's focusing, as we'll see, upon those sinful desires and activities, and he's saying you're to exercise yourself so as to put that to death. Now, all of us would understand that instantly if in your house in the month of April you were to discover a snake. In the month of April, you're going through, perhaps you're getting your house clean and whatever, and you move a box and you see what you can't imagine having seen in your house. Perhaps a copperhead is there in your house. You have no thought of, well, let's just put the box back. You're now thinking, how do we get rid of this thing? Not just out of the house, but dead. Your focus is now not just upon sort of conserving it and what you're going to do about it and so on to make sure that it's able to just stay right there and not, quote, bother me. Your focus is, your focus is putting it to death. And this is what Paul's getting at. This is our uh, uh, intention. It's to put sin to death. Now, we'll see. This doesn't mean that we can absolutely remove all of its power 
but it does mean that we labor to deprive it of its influence. We're actively engaged against the workings of sin in us. It, as it were, moves this way. We're countering it, and we're seeking to push it, as it were, down and defeat it. And it goes this way, and we're countering it. We're actively engaged, not just to contain, but weaken and lash out against it and remove its influence increasingly in our lives. Thus, to mortify is to deprive sin of its power in us. Abraham's body was mortified. It was as good as dead. It didn't have the power of itself to do what was needed. And Paul's saying, we're to be so exercised against sin that we are, as it were, lessening and deadening its influence in our lives. Now, a couple of things regarding what this means. Negatively, what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that in this life, there is the absolute eradication of sin in us. And so, Paul speaks of the flesh desiring or lusting against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh in Galatians 5 and verse 17. There's an ongoing warfare. There will always be in this life some remaining influence of sin. John says, as quoted earlier, 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now think of that. He doesn't say, if you say you have no sin, or if that person says, but he includes himself. If we, even I, an apostle whose head was privileged to rest upon the most intimate expression of intimacy with Christ, if I were to say that I was without sin, I'm deceived. See, the point is, the believer in this life will have the ongoing wrestling and war against indwelling sin. So Paul isn't saying you're going to so persecute and put to death the sin that one day in this world you'll no longer have any influence of sin at all. But rather, there's an ongoing uh, fighting against it. You're never contented with what's been done, but you're actively stabbing at it and stabbing at it again and again and again until it is this life is over. Nor should we think of this mortifying as something that is merely a passive experience in the Christian's life. Notice Paul doesn't say, just sit back and let mortification happen. He says, mortify your members which are upon the earth. You're to be engaged in this battle. It's not something you sit back and wait for something to wash over you and all of a sudden you wake up and you say, it's mortified. But Paul is exhorting the Christian, the believer, the regenerate one, to labor earnestly to put these things to death. You know what it would be to have something that endangered your life and you taken over with a surge of energy to labor, to defend yourself and your loved ones and to put to death that one who was desiring your downfall. People talk about this in the rush of battle or in the rush of self-defense that strength, as it were, seems to overpower them and whatever else is going to happen to them, they're going to put that one down who's coming at them. They're not just passive, they're active in the uh, attempt to put to death and to destroy the one 
who is seeking to destroy them. And that's true of the Christian. The Christian is to be active in these things. Now, we have to see the connection, and we will, that this is not an activity of our own strength. But it doesn't deny the fact that it is an activity still of our soul. Well, if that's what it isn't, and much more could be said, what is mortifying? One thing to note is that it is the constant and progressive war against sin in our souls. Mortify, put to death, and notice, uh, in the, uh, even in the English, in the Greek it's more evident, it's an ongoing work. It's present. Continue doing it. Mortify and keep mortifying your members upon the earth. And so it's a constant and it's a progressive activity. We're doing it and we don't just say, well, I did it and I'm done. I had that moment. It's not like physical baptism where we can say, I was baptized and you know that's that. It's rather an ongoing activity. So, for instance, the Scriptures come to us and say, pray. And we don't look at that exhortation and say, well, I did that five years ago, and now I'm on to other things. We realize there is a constant calling to prayer. And the same is true with mortifying. This is, of course, an aspect of sanctification. It's true that with sanctification, that we are being acted upon, right? And yet, as being acted upon by God, He makes us active. So it's God who works within us to will and to do of all of His good pleasure. And the same is true with this particular focus of sanctification, the putting to death of our sin. He's working within us that we would constantly wage war against the enemy. Now, we don't mean to take a side or to speak against you know, one way or the other, but you think of what's going on right now Russia and Ukraine. And someone in Ukraine uh, may be worn out, may be thinking, you know, I'm just tired of this. And I'm, this is what I'm going to do. To escape all of this nonsense and all of this pain and agony and whatever else, I'm just going to act like it's not happening anymore and I'm going to go about my life as normal. Well, that could be a fair dream and a fair wish. But it's not real. If they're going to have any sense of continuing on in life, they have to realize the war is present and is demanding their attention still. They don't just say, well, kids, go ahead and carry out and play in the uh, uh, playground where the bombs are being fired because, you know, just ignore it all. No, they're taking actions and they're thinking through and they're uh, working through the details of how the war has shifted here and shifted there and the theaters and the displays of the war that's taking place. And the same is true in the Christian's life. This is a warfare that is present. The Christian never wakes up any given day in this life to a time when the war is not present. Now that may strike us as difficult. It may even strike us as unpleasant and unwanted. But it is the truth regarding the Christian in this life. This side of heaven, the Christian never wakes up to peace with sin. Because sin is actively seeking to stumble and trip up and divert the Christian. We don't mean that the Christian never wakes up without peace in Christ, but rather 
that with reference to his approach to sin, there is to be a constant focus upon putting sin to death. This also means that we never say, and Paul doesn't say, well, you know, you've gained some ground against uncleanness, therefore now turn the page and focus on something else. No, we're continuing to put it down further to death because we realize it can return and uh, grow up, as it were, and spring up and fight against us with greater strength. So positively then, mortification includes the constant and progressive warfare against sin. Your own experiences illustrate this. Each of us have had the shameful experience of having struggles with sin, and then given by God's grace attention to them, we saw some success over them. And yet then what happened is we sort of sat down, rested upon our laurels, as the saying is, and we thought, well, that's in the past and not a struggle anymore, only to find months, perhaps years even later, because of the little attention and the little activity against it, it sprang up undetected by us and, as it were, stumbled us again. What was the reason, among other things? It was because we weren't constantly putting to death that aspect of sin. Moreover, not only constant and progressive, but active. It's the active pursuit of our soul by the Spirit. You see this beautifully stated by Paul in Romans chapter 8 when the same theme is before the Christian. And again, couched in the most tremendously encouraging context of grace. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So many Christians would say, therefore, don't worry about sin because we are in Christ. But Paul says, listen, we are in Christ, and because of that, and of His Spirit who resides in us, what are we to do? Notice, he says it in verse 13. The flesh, or according to the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. A mark of the Christian is his, by the Spirit, mortifying the deeds of the body. And so, notice, Paul doesn't say, if the Spirit mortifies the deeds of the body. But if you, by the Spirit, mortify the deeds of the body. What's the point? Well, we'll see the source, which is, of course, the Spirit, which is given us by Christ. But we need to see and be clear in our minds that the Christian is active in this engagement. There is an activity of the renewed that is warring now against sin. And so that means our faculties are engaged. Our thoughts are brought to turn against sin. We cultivate, by God's grace, a conscience which is instructed not by the standards which move and shift and wane and erode over time of our friends or of our workplaces or of our culture at large, but we are laboring to inform our consciences according to the Word of God. We're seeking to gain knowledge and understanding. We're praying and asking God that He would incline our wills not to sin, but to His commandments. We're praying against sin. We're praying unto God, O God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And all of that 
is an activity of our soul. We're not puppets on a string, just lifelessly hanging there and made to move this way and that way against our volition. But as Christians, the Spirit of God has enlivened us so that our minds are engaged, our wills are inclined, and our souls with the full faculty of, use of faculties therein are exercised in mortification against sin. So that means that our minds are at work. Our wills are at work. The whole of our souls are at work. All engaged by the Spirit against sin. So one thing we can say is, the person who is not actively cultivating thoughts about sin as God teaches our minds to think, is not actively engaged in mortification. The soul that is not actively engaged in crying out to Christ by His grace to strengthen us to put sin to death is not engaged in mortification. So you'll see the soul must be actively engaged in these things. Prayers, study, fellowship, all of these things are going on. And it's the activity of the soul, as we'll see, which is enlivened by the Spirit. Well, notice then secondly, the target of mortification. What is this that mortification focuses upon? Well, generally, it's anything having to do with our sin. This is important to note. There is something for the Christian against the sins of others, but mortification is more particularly focused on one's own soul and its war against sin. So there is a place, of course, for the public witness of the church against public sins. And in some way, that can be related to mortification. But mortification properly is focused on my sins, my indwelling sin, how it is that I need to overcome sin in my life. And so you can see how this will be connected later on. In, for instance, verse 18, Wives, Submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. That can only take place as the wife, the Christian wife, is cultivating the putting to death of pride and you know, arrogance and argumentativeness and all other things in their lives. And notice husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. And so if a husband is to love his wife, he has to be active in putting to death his bitterness and so on. So it has traction into, quote, the real world, as people like to say. But brethren, this is the real world where sin resides in your soul and is actively seeking to disturb and distress and to distract and divert you from your calling, first and foremost, as a holy vessel unto the Lord. And then secondly, unto all of the various roles that he's given. So generally, the target of mortification is everything with reference of our souls and sin. So it includes our speech and conduct, it includes our activity of hands and feet, how we spend our time, and all of these things as well. And you can see that in some sense, when you look at what Paul says, when he says, mortify your members, the bodies, your instruments, of sin, which are upon the earth. And then he highlights 
fornication, which is an activity of sin, uncleanness, which is a desire that moves to an activity, inordinate affection, which is getting closer to desires, more intimately evil, twisted, corrupt, lust, concupiscence, and then covetousness, which he then links to idolatry. So it's this comprehensive scope of sin. But more particularly, mortification strikes at the vital aspects of sin. So you can think of this, perhaps, by way of an illustration. If you're truly seeking to put something to death, you don't sort of shave off the edges of it and then let it carry on, right? And so policemen are trained to shoot to kill. They aren't trained to shoot at some intruder and to wound them in the kneecap. They're not trained to shoot them in the big toe and just to injure them. Soldiers aren't trained to do that. They're trained to shoot to kill because they need to put to death the one who is uh, threatening either their or others' lives. And the same is to be true with reference to the Christian. We're not seeking to just sort of hinder sin or get skirting by it or somehow containing it We're seeking to strike the death knell into the beast that lies within us still. It is seeking to put it to death, to uh, uh, remove, as it were, its influence increasingly unto its ultimate end. And to do so, we must strike at the things of the heart. And so, whereas the instruments have to be... uh, uh, you know, moderated and addressed, it's ultimately addressing and targeting the things of the heart. And so it's instructive that when Paul says, mortify your members, the instruments, your bodies, he then quickly goes into the issues of the heart. And you see this again when he says in verse 8, put off all these. And what does he say? Anger, wrath, malice. Three things which will show themselves in activity. But one can be angry, even sinfully angry, and never so much as say a word. One can be full of malice and yet never act upon it, right? The point is, if we're going to target sin in the act of mortification, we're laboring to target it at its root in our hearts. This is why Christ says, listen, it's not what goes into the man that makes the man unclean, but what comes out for out of the heart proceed all manner of wickedness. In other words, the target is the very root of sin itself. And you actually see this in Psalm 51. So David confesses his sin against thee, the only have I sinned, and in thy sight done this evil, that thou may be uh, justified when thou judgest, and so on. But then what does he say? He says, cleanse me, wash me, He says, create in me a clean heart. What's he getting at? He's saying, I need the root of this matter addressed. I don't just need my mouth locked up. I don't just need my eyes sewn shut. I don't just need my ears stopped up. I need my heart put to death with reference to its sin. And I need my heart made alive with reference to holy longings and desires. So in other words, the target is not merely the outward actions. Indeed, of course, it includes that. We're not denying that. Paul, in his list, includes an act 
fornication. He includes an act, blasphemy, filthy communication. But you'll also see he's addressing the desires of the heart. In other words, the outward displays are not the ultimate target. The outward displays are not the ultimate enemy. The outward displays need their attention as the outward displays that are contrary to God's Word are sins. But the heart of the issue, the center of it all, are sinful desires. In other words, we may perhaps think that, well, if I was merely targeting my blasphemy, I've overcome it if I no longer speak another blasphemous syllable. Well, there may be great advantage to that, but what if our lips are silent to blasphemy, but our minds are full of it? Our hearts despise God and are light in heavy things. We may, perhaps, as Christ gets at, you know, we may think, well, I struggle with this lustful activity. And we say, I'm cutting that off. I'm cutting off this avenue and that avenue, and I'll never be around another person other than my spouse and other such things. But what if our hearts are full of lust? You see, the point is, the action needs addressing. But the action can be addressed without the root of the matter being addressed. And when that happens in due time, the root will give life to activity again. So when we think, ah, I've mortified my sin, and we say to ourselves, here's the reason I don't do that thing anymore. We have to start thinking more deeply and say, well, is that because I've just managed some outward reformation, which can be affected by many things, outward shame, embarrassment. How many of us as children remember doing some things on friends that we would never do around our parents? saying some things around other places that we would never say in the church. That's not because we had mortified anything. It's because the constraint of authority forced, as it were, our compliance. Mortification is not the forced compliance by outward constraint. Mortification is the putting to death the very impulse of the sinful desire within us. It targets that. It's not content with the mere appearance that things are well. It's searching through the heart. This is why the psalmist says, Search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. That's the scene, the theater, the focus, the target of mortification. The very fountain of sinful desires. Now we know by experience the negative, the, 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 the difficulty and trial of this, we say, I'm never going to talk rudely again to my wife or husband or children or whatever else. And what happens? Circumstances arise and we get frustrated. We feel ourselves escalate and our you know, uh, anger starts to rise. And we say, well, that's it. I'm not going to say anything. We go and we never actually deal with the sin. We just manage, as it were, the outward display. That's not mortification. It may be a counseling tactic. It may be a psychological maneuver. But it's not mortification. Because mortification takes the sinful desire and says, I need that crucified. I need that 
annihilated and blasted and stabbed to death again and again and again. That this is present in me is evidence that mortification is not done yet. Brethren, that's the reason, by the way, that in this life, mortification's never over. For who among us would say, well, yeah, you know, I once struggled with anger. I don't struggle with that anymore. I once struggled with coveting. That's not an issue anymore. I once struggled with X, Y, Z. That's not a struggle anymore. It may be less of a struggle. It may not manifest as largely as it once did. But it's still an issue this side of heaven because of indwelling sin. This was the massive mistake, among others, of the Pharisees. They loved to address the outside and the appearance, but they despised and ignored addressing the inside man. And so we target in mortification the fountain and source, the roots of sin. Well, thirdly and lastly, the source. To see the source clearly, you have to see that one word in verse 5. Therefore. Mortify, therefore. In other words, there's a foundation to this exhortation that is not in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. The foundation of it is in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. You're to put to death sin because of what you now are in Christ. What you have now in Christ. What Christ is now for you and in you. The connection, therefore, links us to verses 1 through 4. The connection of therefore in verse 5 links us to verses 1 through 4 regarding our union with the risen and reigning Savior. Notice as well, verse 7, it says that in the which, in these sins, ye also walked some time. This was your former life and identity. When ye lived in them. But that expression or that idea of living has come up already. And it's in the present for the Christian, verse 3, that your life is hid with Christ in God. It's no longer in the inordinate wickedness of this world. It's not in the manner of living of the children of disobedience. It's in Christ. Notice as well that verse 4 says Christ is our life. So where your life once was the realm of death and dank depravity, now your life is Christ. And by Him you have life. He is the one who works within you and is able to strengthen you unto all of these things. This is why it's not an unregenerate, unconverted person who's called to mortification. Because they have no ability to put to death their sin. They can put bandages on it. They can put spiritual religious makeup on it. They can put clothing on it and cover it. They can put artificial appearances on but they can't address the root of the matter. The Christian can because the Christian is united to Christ. Think of this. The source is the reigning Christ. He possesses all power and authority. Moreover, He has already conquered sin personally. Every temptation which is common to man, He faced every one. And one by one by one by one, in all degrees of intensity, he conquered and overthrew. When he was at his weakest, for instance, Satan came with such ferocity that makes us to tremble. What would I do if I were in the strength of my uh, 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 body when he would offer me the world and show me all of the things? 
What would I do if I were weak as Christ was weak at that point and He offered me food if I would but bow to Him? Christ conquered all of those things personally and we're united to Him who has the power and conveys that power by His grace unto us. He's conquered it judicially so that it's no longer a law for us because Christ has put it to death. He's removed it from being the master of our souls. He's displaced it from being the ruler of our thoughts and hearts. One has said it as if chained to sin. The unbeliever is so chained to sin that when lust pulls, the sinner must respond. But though the chain is still present, it's a severed thing. So the Christian can hear the chain pulled, but Christ has cut the chain in two. And so maybe the temptation is to respond to the sound, but he's no longer under compulsion by grace to answer the call of sin. Christ has severed that link. But moreover, it's not just Christ who is our source, but it's Christ in us who is our source. It's Christ our life who is our source. Notice the language again in verses 1-4. through If ye then be risen with Christ, ye are seated in heavenly places with Him. These are the truths of Christ in us. He now abides in us and we in Him. He now works in us to conquer our sins. And so it's not just a distant reigning King to whom we send distant petitions and He may send a helpful answer, but it's we're in Christ and He's in us. And so we take our sins to Him and say, you're the one who's able to give strength against this. We, as it were, take Christ to our sin and say, look what's inflamed in my desires right now. You take care of this. Engage me. Strengthen me. Quicken me. If you want to know what mortification looks like, read Psalm 119. That is an active soul in mortification Quicken me that I may walk in your ways. Unite my heart unto thy fear. You know, cause me to walk contrary to sin, to put it down, to ignore it, to deny it, to uh, fight against it. All of these petitions are different aspects of living by God's grace in Christ against our sin. It's Christ in us who enlivens us to the battle of daily putting to death our sin. Brethren, here is the cause why we have often failed in our temptations. Because we have either thought that sin is an easy enemy and rather harmless, or we've thought that we're an able warrior in ourselves, able and strong of ourselves to accomplish the work. We think perhaps of sin as merely a past reality. But Paul who acknowledges all of the great, and we'll get to these uh, wonderful statements of what we do have in Christ and the encouragements that are there. He sees sin as a present trouble to the Christian. And so he focuses our attention against our enemy. When we think about spiritual warfare, the charismatics in the world would have us think merely about Satan. The Bible acknowledges that, and we're too little in acknowledging it in our circles, perhaps. 
But we are right to see that the main focus of spiritual warfare is not something, as it were, alien to us, against us. It's something embedded in us, which is our own indwelling sin. That's a real enemy. You may never know another earthly enemy all your life, as far as men, women, and others go. And yet you'll have a present enemy, as long as you live in this world, abiding in your soul. We have to see that if we are then to overcome it. Notice, it's an activity of soul by the Spirit, by Christ, that gives this great privilege of putting it to death. Well, brethren, we close with this, that if we're to put death to death our indwelling sin, we must see the great need to be in Christ by faith. This is Paul's great starting point in this chapter. And if we have that, we have the source and cause and influence for victory in putting sin to death day by day because He has the limitless supply of all that's required. He provides us all that is needed. And so we come to Him and we study the ways of sin. We search it out. We're examining ourselves and our hearts and our thoughts and consciences. We're studying the Scriptures as to what is sin, what isn't sin, what sin uh, is led, or what leads to sin, temptations, and so on. We're student of the Word. We're student of our own hearts and thoughts and minds. We understand these things. We study also the supplies of Christ and how He conveys them to us by the means of His Word and the sacraments and prayer. And so then we pursue Him through these channels and we appeal to Him that He would provide us what He promises by them. And as we're doing that, we then come to Christ and say, Oh Christ, You who are my life. Think of that expression. You who give life to me. Remember, Abraham's body was as good as dead. Abraham's body was dead for the purpose of what he was to do. But we are alive in Christ. It's Christ who is our life who is able to give us the strength to overcome even the most entangled sin in our lives. Here is the encouragement in the whole thing. The daily warfare that you face in this life is a daily warfare for which you have an ample provision to stand victorious every day. Because Christ knows no weakness. Christ knows no loss. Christ knows no uh, lack of success. As we live by faith in Him, as we draw from Him, as we put all upon Him, and as we take all from Him, We're given, as it were, the grace day by day to answer the battle every moment. But brethren, only so far as we live in an abiding fellowship by faith in Christ. This is why Christ says, Abide in Me, I in you. If a branch abides in Me, he'll bear much fruit. If you do not abide in Me, you can do nothing. Brethren, in Christ we have all, so that whatever the strongest temptation and sin is that would come to your doorstep every day, you go directly to Christ and you appeal to Him to provide you what He's promised, that by His grace you would know what it is to put to death even your members which are upon the earth. Would you stand with me for prayer?